coming to you from beautiful Santa Barbara, California. Promoting peace, healthy living, and happiness. It's the Peace Podcast with host Barbara Gon Mueller. Thank all of you for joining us today. Today is June the 29th. It is 2021. And I am President Barbara Gon Mueller of the Rotary E-Club of World Peace in the United Nations Association, Santa Barbara Tri-Counties, because I believe that in groups, in harmony, we can do more together than by ourselves. And so I try to get groups together in my life that sing my song, that shout my values. And that's why the United Nations is so important because my late husband worked for over 40 years at the United Nations, bringing many of the programs that we take for granted together. So with that, I'd like to tell you that tonight is a program that's going to kind of awaken your awareness. We're going to show you what's going on in Kitty Boss. What is going on on these beautiful islands with the seas rising and the crops being destroyed and the people going to become climate refugees? This is going to be the tip of the iceberg. We're really going to see lots of icebergs that are going to have that melted. So our seas are rising. That's what my husband said at the UN. What are we going to do when the seas rise to the point that we lose our island populations and they lose their crops and they lose their homeland? So with that, we're not going to give you the answer, but we're going to help you help us help us come with, up with solutions. I know we can do it. All right. So to begin, I'd like to introduce the person who brought this whole program together, Nancy Martin is our program chair for the United Nations Association. And so Nancy, I'd like you to introduce our first speaker tonight. And again, welcome. This will be on our wonderful link to unasb.org. It will be recorded so that you can share it with your family and have those hard conversations. Thank you, Nancy. Okay, it's my privilege to introduce Brady Ferguson. And I know him from RPCVs for Environmental Action, um, which I think he's one of the driving forces. But he also works for as the Director of Public Engagement for Co Climate Solutions Accelerator of the Finger Lakes of Rochester, New York region. And he's a dedicated climate activist. And I think he's going to explain why. And actually, we all need to be dedicated climate activists. So take it away, Brady. Thank you, Nancy, for that kind introduction. And thank you, Barbara. And thank you all to everyone here for your dedication to this organization and for taking the time to, to attend and hopefully to learn something, that is if, if I do my job right. But I wanna start by just asking a little question and Lulu and Mike Roman, this one's not for you, but for everybody else, has anyone ever lived on a coral atoll? Okay, looking like a no, so that's <laughs> not surprising. I myself had never even knew what a coral atoll even was before I was on a plane heading to the Central Pacific Ocean. We started our descent and then I saw it out the the little window of the airplane. Now this was 2006. I was on my way to the Republic of Kiribati, where I'd be living for the next two years of my life. And wow, that was 15 years ago, but I'm still very closely connected to Kiribati and I'll explain why. And that's what I'm here to do this evening. So I'm gonna share my screen because I have some different images I'd like to show while I'm speaking about me, myself and my Kiribati connection. So there's me shortly after I arrived in Kiribati back in 2006 with some of my friends, Take and, and Sos and his child there and one of their friends, I don't remember his name, but this was shortly after I arrived in Kiribati and I was there to work as a Peace Corps volunteer doing health and community development. And this was during my training just in the first few weeks in the country there. Now here's that, well, a shot from a 
an airplane, but this is what it looks like. These, these croatos are just thin strips of land in the middle of a vast ocean. The Republic of Kiribati covers an area of the ocean just about the size of the United States, but the land area is, is just minuscule, minuscule compared to the ocean. These thin strips are only a few feet above sea level, and in any given spot, in any given spot, probably less than a quarter mile wide, but there's some places where you can stand there, look over on one side, and you see the lagoon, look to the other side, and there's the open ocean. So it's very different from most other places in the world. Here's, if you zoom out from that, you can see a little bit better what it looks like. On the left-hand side, you see a satellite image showing two of the islands of Kiribati. The one at the top is Abeyan, where I lived for most of my time there. And just below that to the south is Tarawa, that's the capital island. And as you can see from there, just these thin strips of land, Abeyang, that one from tip all the way to tip is maybe about 22 miles long, but very thin the whole way. And then if you look at the larger map on the right, you just see this area of the ocean and a lot of the islands are so small, they're not even dots on the map there. There are 32 coral atolls and one volcanic island, Banabar, ocean island. So total 33 islands that make up the country and just spread out over that area, the ocean there. Now it is pronounced Kiribati. The T-I, or that, that T in the T-I is actually pronounced like an S. I still to this day do not know why, but what happened was in 1857, Hiram Bingham, who was a Protestant missionary from the U.S., arrived in Kiribati, and he was the one who is credited with coming up with a written version of the language, because before that, it was just something that people spoke to each other. And I do not know why he decided to use T-I for the, the S sound, but that's still what is used today. The word Kiribati is actually the no local pronunciation of Gilbert, Gilbert Kiribati, because it was a uh, controlled by Britain for many years, and they called it the Gilbert Islands, at least the, the main group of islands in the western part of the country. It is in what is known as the Micronesia region, Central Pacific Ocean, and amongst those 33 islands, well, 21 are inhabited, and about 113,000 people total living on those inhabited islands, about half of them on the capital island of, of Tarawa. The rest of the islands are not as densely populated. It became independent from England back in 1979. And even though it has been independent since then, English is still one of the main languages spoken there. But then there's also the local language, which is also called Kiribati. That's the main one people use day to day. And just a little side note about England, what happened was on that one volcanic island, Banaba, they had large phosphate deposits from all of the birds that would go there and England came, phosphate can be used for fertilizer, so they mined all that phosphate, and then when they ran out, then that happened in 1979, and they said, okay, you can become independent now. Basically, what happened after they had really destroyed that island from, from mining it, um, but one of the, the many unfortunate legacies of, of colonialism, but Kiribati has been independent since 1979. I mentioned I was in the Peace Corps there doing the Health and Community Development Program. I was part of Group K35, meaning the 35th Group of Peace Corps Volunteers, to be in the country. There's us when we first arrived at Bondiki International Airport. There were 15 of us. And then there's a couple years later, I was doing a training. Well, we actually did a three-day life skills workshop with youth on the island where I lived, Abayan. But that was just part of my work, youth development, also working with the village welfare group, working with island health workers and coming up with different projects to improve health in the community and to, to help meet community needs. I did get to live with a wonderful host family when I was there. Basically, they, they adopted me and I'm still in touch with them now. That's my mother, Asinda, with Nona, Tabutao, Terapuepue, and Buranibue my brothers and sisters from Kiribati, but it was really an amazing experience and they were also very welcoming. 
so very friendly. And I'd say I probably learned more than I taught. Well, hopefully it was, it went both ways. The, the goals of the Peace Corps are, first of all, to help build the capacity of the places where Peace Corps volunteers go, but then also to share, to improve the understanding of Americans by people from other countries, and then to improve the understanding of people in other countries by Americans. So these are the three Peace Corps goals, Peace Corps goals and I felt lucky to, I think I achieved all of them, at least to some extent, but a lot of that credit is due to the wonderful people who I met there and got to live with and just learn about a culture very different from ours, but a very beautiful culture. Speaking of, of that, here's a person who lived just down the street from me in the village where I lived. We met there and then one thing led to another and we got married there. So that's my wife, Bobure. We met in the village of Evena Abeyan. After I finished my Peace Corps service, we got married and then we moved back here to the US. And right now we live in Rochester, New York in my hometown. But even though we live here on the other side of the world, we're still very closely connected to our family in Kiribati. So there's my wife, our two kids there. This is from our last trip to visit, which was back in 2018. And that's us with our niece there. And very fortunately, due in large part to Facebook Messenger, we're, still, we're able to stay in touch with the family pretty, pretty regularly. Now I want to just speak about one specific project I worked on as a Peace Corps volunteer and what I learned from that and how that's still, how that has had a big impact on my life. So we did this water and sanitation survey in the village of Evena on Abayang Island where I lived. What happened was there were some nursing students who came to the island as part of their training and they had to do some type of final project. So they decided they wanted to do this water and sanitation survey and I knew them because I was in the village. They came to me, asked if I could help them with this. So we de designed this survey, a series of questions, and then I went with them as we visited every single house in the village and asked them a series of questions related to their water supply, related to how they took care of sanitation needs. And the major finding we found from that was that most of the wells in the village were brackish, meaning the water was starting to become salty. And that's due to saltwater intrusion which is becoming a, a bigger and bigger problem all around Kiribati because as the ocean is rising, that salt water is intruding into the groundwater supply and making wells go brackish. So the people in Evena are very resourceful, very, very resilient, but what, they, what they've done is built these complex piping systems where they have these, you can see these long black plastic pipes where they find a well that does have fresh water and then a bunch of people will connect these pipes to it and then they pump the water from that well so that if a person lives as their house next to a well that's brackish they can pump this water from a freshwater well and that's what the man on the right there is doing just with a hand pump pumping that fresh water also people are fortunate to have rainwater tanks they have access to so behind my friend Fainga here, there are a couple rainwater tanks, one smaller one on the left, bigger one on the right. Most of these are donated by different international groups or aid organizations from other countries like Australia, New Zealand, the EU, Taiwan previously, but now are now China. But they have a lot of these donated rainwater tanks. So it's for now, it's been working okay, at least when, when I speak to my family, because they have access to the rainwater. The rain falls enough, even though weather patterns are changing, but usually they get enough rain, so they have enough rainwater, and they don't have to worry about drinking that brackish wa water. Unfortunately, they're still using that brackish water for bathing, using it for washing and everything else they need to do. And if there's ever a time when the rainwater tank runs out, then people are stuck drinking that salty brackish water or they have to walk long distances to find a freshwater well in between villages. So it's not the best situation, but they're making do for now. Now that saltwater intrusion is also impacting the food supply. Here you can see me and, and some of my friends in a village called Onobwaka, also on Abeyan. And this is a taro pit. So they grow what's called giant taro or swamp taro, but they dig these pits deep enough to hit the water table and then they fill up with this muddy water, but that's good for growing this, this taro root and it's one of the main 
foods that people depend on. In the picture on the left, you see us holding some, some pieces of this taro root, and they can get a lot bigger than that, but they can also be harvested at that size. Now, when that salt water gets into these pits with a taro root, uh, the, the pits stop producing or, or produce a lot less because they're, they're made for fresh water. So the saltwater intrusion is impacting the food supply as well. And it's not just the taro root, the trees just growing in the soil. When the soil becomes more saline, the trees don't produce as much and eventually the trees will die if that soil gets too salty. So here's a breadfruit tree. Those two green fruits you see on there are breadfruit. It's a very starchy fruit that people depend on. Here's a coconut tree, but those are two main staple crops that people depend on and they're, they're producing less because of that soil becoming, having that increasing salinity. Now the other main source of food there is from the ocean. Everyone lives on the ocean, so everyone eats a lot of seafood, lots of fish, but also things like clams and eels. That's what's in that top left picture. And from what I've heard, fortunately, the, the fish supply in KDBS has not yet been too negatively affected by climate change, I, but I certainly worry it will be. Coral reefs are being harmed by climate change. A lot of places around the world are seeing these coral bleaching events where the reef pretty much just dies, and then all the fish that depend on that reef are going to go away. So I have not yet heard of coral bleaching happening in Kiribati, but I do worry that it could happen. And then also they have those, some of the, the fish people find in the open ocean like tuna. As the water temperature changes, those fish are migrating to different places. So the food supply is, and the food supply coming from the ocean is a big concern as well. And then also the, the erosion from the sea level rise, from waves becoming more powerful due to the warming temperatures of the ocean, from higher high tides, higher king tides, more storms, the erosion is increasing there. And this is just on the side of a road on the island of Abeyang. You see these two coconut trees are about to fall into the lagoon while they're building a seawall. And in a lot of places in, in Kiribati there, they have to continually build up these seawalls and then a storm, big waves come, they get wrecked, they have to build them up again. And it's just pretty much a constant process trying to hold off the, the encroaching sea there. So there's back to my family again in, in Kiribati, and that was from 2007. The last time I visited them was in 2018, all a little bit older. My, my father in Kiribati, Kiyayeta, a lot more gray. I'm getting a little gray myself, but we, as I said, even though we're on the other side of the world, we're very closely connected with them. And when I think about climate change, this is the first thing I think of. I think about people before the science, before the politics. It's really about people and, and the human beings that it's, it's already affecting. So that's what comes to mind for me when I think about climate change. And that's what motivates me to be an advocate for action on climate change and for supporting climate change migrants. It's because of my Kiribati connection. Here are my kids and three of their cousins and their grandma in, in Kiribati. Things are so different for my kids than at least as far as their future. Their cousins in Kiribati have a future that's a lot more uncertain. And that's something that, that we really think about and we care about and we wanna do something about it and hopefully find a way to get other people to want to do something about it as well. So there's my story. I am going to next play a short film by Lulu de Boer. And then we're all very lucky because she's here with us to tell us more about her film afterward. But first, I'm going to play that film, and I hope you enjoy it. I loved you, since before I can remember. A love that was pure. The love of living, the love of family, the love of home. But we were separated, and I grew up far, far away in the oil heart of Texas. 
but you lingered still in the songs of my grandmother, illuminating the painful voids in my memory. After college, I found myself in the arms of Silicon Valley, infatuated with the romantic promise of a bright Now the eyes of the world are on Kiribati. And have a good look at this island because uh, you won't be able to see it for much longer. We're told in 30 years' time, Millennium Island simply not exist anymore. You were drowning and dying of thirst at the same time. What's all the changes here happening to us is climate change, you know? But I didn't fully understand your problems until I adapted to you completely. And surely enough, the world I left behind left me. I just got broken up by I'm just gonna cry, okay? Okay, right? Just, just, just focus on your work. After a break, sometimes all you can do is work to rebuild. And I did forget myself into the sea of your soul but that same sea that sustains you keeps rising and rising to break down your walls and I didn't know how much longer this love could last against the crashing onslaught Global warming itself is a crock of gold but I am sympathetic to the oil industry we'd be a bunch of animals living in caves or, or tropical islands Sing like it was us against the world, and we were doomed. But the warrior blood of my ancestor burns in me, refusing to give up. And I was not alone. So we fight to stay in our country. This morning, all these members of our community wake up for mango planting. So mangrove growing is part of the adaptation to protect the coast from eroding away. It's our home. We have to protect it. But all the mangroves in the world still can't protect you from storms. Or worse, droughts. <laughs> Through the foundation that can provide sustainable energy to run those things, but at a very affordable rate. Good, good, good. The solar panel. Oh, okay. Me and you go to the middle. I don't want to solve this problem. But is it all too little, too late? Have I loved you? Only time shows you a tiny island. Vast void, home to everything I've ever known. But if we, your humanity, fail, if I fail to save you, just remember, I loved you. Thank you, Brady, and thank you, Lulu. Um, Nancy, would you like to introduce Lulu? Or yes, I would thank love you to so introduce much. Lulu. Um, 
so Lulu made this film and she's working on a longer one, which I'm, have you finished it yet? Oh, the question I've been asking myself for the past decade. Okay. <laughs> right. Okay, well, keep working. That's all I can say. And um, Lulu has a day job, so this isn't her whole life, but a big part of it, I think. And Lulu is what we call a Peace Corps kid, so <laughs> she can explain that to you. And tell us, um, tell us what's been happening, and um, I know your grandmother died, huh? Yeah, so that particular grandmother, because in the islands you have multiple grandmothers as well. Ah, lucky. But every call, everybody calls me Lulu, and I love it. It's a name I've really chosen for myself along the years. Um, and it's like the short version of Ruru, right? And yeah, that lady in this video is my grandmother. I have two grandmothers in that short five minute clips and you cannot put enough grandmothers into any amount of cinema. I think they are the people and the people who really run the world globally. Grandmothers rock. So um, to anybody out there who's grandmother, thank you very much. Um, so my first grandmother here in the States was my mother's mother. She was doing my hair. And then my namesake grandmother is my mother's Hanaya sister's mother. And that just shows you how close they were because they were named, like she named me after her best friend's mother, right? And her name was Kaaruru. And so she was a big inspiration for that five minute film because she did pass away and she is no longer with us. But now I am Kaaruru Senior, the second of my name and uh, Lulu to everybody else around the world because it's just easy to say in every language. <laughs> well, how serious is it right now? Lulu in Kiribati. How serious yeah. is it? And are people still living on the islands? Oh, yes. And oh, tell course. us about the solar project, too, and what oh. happened with that. So, um, so that particular project I was trying to get past was for Tesla's nonprofit Give Solar. And they're doing a big push into the Pacific with their panels and their batteries and their systems. Um, they just got something passed in, Sol uh, in Samoa, I think. So, when I came through the States again on one of my refueling trips for equipment and other film related things and visas, uh, I stopped by there and they wanted me to pitch it to Bonneba. And like um, my colleague mentioned earlier, Bonneba was kind of destroyed, 90% destroyed by the British for phosphate mining. So little parts of my clip, you'll see me sitting on these really tall sort of white looking stalactites with like trees below, that's Bonneba. And um, what it's like in Kiribati now, I think um, the first thing to understand about Tarawa, particularly the capital island that I spent most of the time on, is that it is the third densest place in the whole world. So it's like, I think it's like London or Tokyo, one of those two, and then Tarawa Kiribati. And that's why I think um, the Peace Corps did a lot of emphasis on health, because they saw that Tarawa was just getting more and more uh, congested and overpopulated and these tiny little islands can barely support a certain amount of populations. So I think it's really fascinating to watch over the years as technology rises, like we could theoretically use solar, we could use solar to run a desalination plant, which was my hope for Bonneva, mm. right? Which I think is a pretty good technical solution. Uh, did not go through though, and then there was an administration change. And I think that was pretty smart, to be perfectly honest, because in the islands with all these parts for repairs and all these various competing manufactured systems on different like voltages and stuff, it's kind of necessary to have all of the islands with the same equipment so they can help each other with repairs. Because that was the reason the first Bonneba desalination plant was no longer working, was the, by the time it had broken, the parts themselves were so expensive to make and ship over that they might as well have bought a whole new system. So water is a big issue, very tangible and very, um, very felt. And I like the seawall bit that uh, Brittany put in there because when you go and look at it, the coastline now, it's almost like a study in various seawall making strategies because uh, people really are like barricading getting squeezed together by a population 
and then trying to extend out their land as much as possible. All right. How about um, crops? Crops. Well, yeah, so I think that the seawall is a really good image and the water is really important to think of. So if the seawall breaks, where I showed there's a clip in there where this big boat comes and wrecks the seawall in the Bay of Rex and Tharao, and that took out like a hospital area. Well, that happens quite more frequently than it used to. And now with the squeeze on the population, which already squeezes the aquifer, with the sea level rising, which already makes the water lens more brackish, sometimes they'll get these big storms and they'll push all the salt water over the land. And now that goes into the aquifer from the top down. Or even if you just get a freshwater flood, like too much rain one day, that still floods the island. And now all these open wells are contaminated with whatever was on the ground. So it's like, it gets really gross and very murky. If it like freshwater floods even, and it goes straight into those like wells if the wells are too low. So that I think is the most pressing concern in Kiribati. And it is like a fairly easy technological thing to fix uh, the water. But as you know, if you have a crop here on the land and it suddenly gets salty from the ocean, there you go, it's salted the earth. Nothing will, will grow after that. Yeah. Um, Lulu, in the longer movie that we saw before, the, some of the houses were starting to get flooded. What, what was causing that? Was it from storms and the ocean going in? Or? Yes. So I'm not a geologist, but I'll explain it to you as best I know how to. There's like an El Nino event that happens. And um, here in Texas, at least, Houston, Texas, where I'm currently at, we feel it with hurricanes. Uh, luckily, the doldrums and Kiribati and everything along the nice tranquil equator, um, they don't typically get hurricanes, but they do get these sort of heightened weather and heightened tides, what they call king tides. So when, if you get a big enough storm, and you get a big king tide, and then the storm pushes the taller, wavier tide onto the land, that'll take out certain trees, they'll take out houses, it'll take out seawalls. Um, and then when you get a pressure on the actual size of the island like Tarawa, where people are packed like house to house to house to house, pigs in between, rain tanks in between, maybe a garden if you get enough, right? And then um, the water system's already taxed and then those big storms come in, well, you've got yourself a recipe for all sorts of health disasters. And trying to keep any garden alive, especially if you're like an ocean side house that maybe does not have the resources to build a really fancy stable seawall, well then your house is going down and there's not much you can do about it. The islands do naturally wane and wax like any atoll in the Pacific, but when you get this sort of gigantic ever increasing shifts and then human activity like building a seawall, you'll get these different patterns of waning and waxing. They say that the causeway in Tarawa, the capital island, caused one of the islets to disappear because that's just how fragile these ecosystems are. They're just little sandbars, really, that are shaped and sculpted by the current of the big ocean around it. This has been your weather report. Lulu uh, <laughs> um, I invite Brady to come in with you and maybe the two of you could talk about what you see as the future or what you'd like to see happening and what you think about all of this. So Brady, unmute, please. And okay. Brady, would you like to go first? Go ahead. Uh, yeah, sure, I'll, sure, I'll jump in. Um, the future is pretty uncertain, I think, I'm certainly not a psychic. No, no, no one knows what the, the future holds for, for sure. I, I was talking about this the other day, and this actually came up because actually we had Mike Roman and I, we did this event a few days ago with a different film about Katie Best, but a person commented about it. And this, this is another person from Micronesia. Her name is Monica Doro. She is a leader in the Micronesia Climate Change Alliance. This is a group based in Guam. So in that same region of the Pacific, but not in Kiribati. But she 
objected to the, the film that she felt it was too, it, it didn't, it was more so the title, I think, than the film itself, but it didn't, she felt it wasn't leaving room to have hope for the future. She thought it was almost like people were giving up on the possibility of being able to stay on their islands in the future. So she, she found that problematic. And that, just that thinking about that is something I, I struggle with because I like to be optimistic. I, I try to be hopeful. I certainly hope that my family and friends in Kitty Best will, will be able to live there for many generations to, to come. But um, based on the just the evidence I see, I read, I'm not a climate scientist, but based on what I see about climate change, what I read about climate change, what I read about sea level rise, it seems pretty likely that at least a lot of people are going to have to, to leave. And maybe some would be able to stay, still stay behind on, on the islands. And there have been scientific studies that have done, Lulu talked about it, how the islands do move over time. And as the waves wash over the, the coral and uh, weathers the coral and moves it, islands could be built up at, in one end at the same time they're being eroded on, on another end. It's, it's a process. But the rate of sea level rise we're seeing is unprecedented. It could accelerate. Way, the waves are getting stronger as the ocean warms. So I think we can't really predict the future based on what's happened in the past. We, so we just don't know what's, what's going to happen. So I, I'd like to be optimistic that people could stay there. Um, and my wife and I have talked about it. Like the land is very important in Kitty Bess and people have a very close attachment to the land. Uh, my wife, when she dies, she wants to be buried there where all her relatives and ancestors are buried. So I said, well, I want to be buried there with you too. So our hope is that we'll be able to, but very nearby on the Marshall Islands, which are just north of Katie Bess, there have been graves that have been washed away by because the sea has risen. So there's that could very well happen in, in Katie Bess also. So there's, yeah, we're, we're unsure about the future. We're certainly worried about our, our friends and, and family there. But like my, my parents there, my wife's parents, I, I don't think they're, they're going to leave. They certainly don't want to leave. My mother-in-law and father-in-law lived with us here in the U.S. for one year. And, and they love getting to see a new place, but they, like, they have no desire to live here long term. Kitty Best is their home. That's where they're going to go. And that's where they want to live and die. But then I think people, a lot of the people more my age, the younger generations, there are, I think there are some who do want to leave. I mean, nobody wants to be forced to abandon their home. But I think there are some people who could, could see that they're probably going to be better off going, going someplace else. And I, I think they should be given that, that option. They should have that right to us, especially because they have contributed almost nothing to the greenhouse gas emissions that are causing climate change. Uh, they should not be forced to, to bear, be bearing the, the worst of the, the impacts with having their home, having to abandon their, their, their homeland and have nowhere to go. So we, you know, we should at least give them someplace to go give them, give them that option. So I, to answer the question, I am hopeful that people will be able to stay there for a long time in the future. I'm pretty sure it won't be everybody but I'd like to hope that some people could, uh, but I, I think we certainly have to be realistic though and, and acknowledge that a lot of people, maybe even everybody, but certainly a lot of people are gonna have to leave. And migration is, is a form of adaptation. So I'm also hopeful that migration can happen in a, in a way that helps people successfully adapt to, to climate change. Thank you. Uh, how about solar? Are they trying to use any kind of solar power so that they might have some other sources? Oh, I can answer. I'll take this one. So I have lots of hopes for Kitabas too. I want them to be the Singapore of the Pacific. I think Bonnevet could be remodeled really easily almost because you could build a tower on there. You really could build one of those big floaty city things that they designed in Japan. You could do that on Bonnevet, and it's 90% uninhabitable anyway, so just saying, putting that out there. I would like to see um, Canton Island, Millennium Island, my movie's namesake, to get a big international airport, because they could, and it would be profitable. I think that one of the biggest disparities in the climate change community is colonialization and post-colonization and the impacts of it, right? So this access to the world's wealth 
and the access to the world's resources because we have the technology so that we can support, support an amazing amount of people on the island that exists now and that could exist in 100 years. China is building islands and I think that was a big political influence on the people of Kiribati just to visibly see a, like a tiny sandbar that looks like something they've seen turn into an island. I think we have the technology that's just really a matter of like international funding and figuring out the post-colonial economy. Uh, I added that piece from 2000, which I think was um, either BBC News or ABC News, one of the broadcasts that I found on YouTube and ripped. <laughs> so that news um, programmer seemed to think there would be no Kiribati in 30 years, just it would just cease to exist, right? And I think that's very easy for us here in America to think about because we barely even know that it exists. So, <laughs> right, you, what you can't see, out of sight, out of mind. So that's what I would like to confess. And then um, what was the second question? Because I could rant on forever about each one of these topics. Well, um, we just had a question come in on the chat, and that was from Catherine in Australia asking, does the UK feel any responsibility towards your islands? Oh, the UK was the official protectorate, per se, after World War II. So a little history lesson. There was a World War II battle in Tarawa, and it was America versus Japan. And America did not read the tides right, and they lost a lot of people. I think they lost more than Normandy when they stormed the beaches. And um, there's some big tanks you'll see sometimes in mm. tourism, the World War II tanks, all those bunkered in. Um, and then, what was the question for that? It was, how do I see the chat? Um, how far along are you on this water conversion? solar water conversion? So it's possible. Um, I think that what Give Power estimated it at was actually just like $100,000 USD. So these are not expensive projects at all. Um, it's kind of crazy to think about, but back in the old administration under Nolte Tong, the star character of Nolte's art, there was like, what was it? You can see that like he's really on this whole advocacy platform of Kitabas needs to migrate. And the Kitabas people have a hard time digesting this idea of all having to move. And I think that's fair because there is an attachment to the land. Plus, Anote did buy a little chunk of Fiji. So theoretically, you could farm in Fiji and ship food back to the main islands. So there's a lot of interesting solutions going around. I think like Back in the old administration, Love from Taiwan, they literally gave every household on every island, because it's really just like, what, 150,000 people? Like, they gave everybody a Love from Taiwan light with a USB plug that you could charge your phone into and a solar panel. And that makes a huge difference. You can do so much business now that you're all connected via cell phones. So, hope that answers all of the questions. These are good. <laughs> Yes, uh, Barry, would you, uh, Barry, would you like to unmute yourself and ask your question? This is Barry Simon. Hello. Well, uh, great um, presentation, Gravy and uh, Lulu, and thank you very much. Great, very interesting film. Uh, is there anything produced on that island that could be exported, or is there the possibility of creating an exportable product to give it a, or is, what, what is their economy based on? Brady, I'll let you start and then I'll add my own thoughts in because I have a lot of thoughts. <laughs> okay, yeah. yeah I'll, I'll start with just the, the basics of it. And Barry, I hope things are good in Santa Monica. I, I worked at the Georgian Hotel on Ocean Avenue for a couple a couple years. And I, oh, I, I have lunch really, there. I have lunch there almost every few weeks. Oh, nice. Yeah, I, was, uh, I supervised the veranda restaurant there. But sorry, uh, that's, that's, another, that's another topic. <laughs> but... Um, yeah, the, the the main export is well. The main export is coconut. They well, they have plenty of coconut trees there. They harvest the coconuts, dry out the meat, and sell it as copra, which can be used for creating all kinds of different products, soap and oil. So I I, I would call that the main export. Now a lot of the money comes from selling fishing rights, 
but it's not like the fish is being caught processed by the people of Kitty Bus. They sell fishing rights to especially a lot of Asian companies, both from Taiwan, Korea, Japan, come and pay for fishing rights to fish in the exclusive economic zones of, of Kitty Bus. Uh, so a large part of the money the government has comes from, from the fishing rights. Uh, and then a lot of the money of the government comes from aid from other countries as well. Um, but Lou will go ahead and, and that you can explain more, more than that. That's just a very, Basic yeah, no. Economics, especially now in our digital world, can be so many things. And I think it's really good, at least it was for me, coming from this capitalist America, to go live in a place where there was very like sustainable living and yeah. barter and trade based. Because I never felt like I had this pressure, especially not to pay rent every month or student loans even, right? <laughs> You're just out there and it's like as long as you can fish, you can feed yourself. And nobody can take away that dignity from you. Nice. So uh, I think, okay, yes, it's very, very important that Kiribati, its gigantic ocean self that it is, keep a healthy fish population because fishing rights is getting competitive. There's even like, a, I think, what is it, Animal Planet or Discovery Channel has a show that's called Fish Wars because mm. that they are in, where is it, um, one of those little island nations, I think the one closest uh, the Maldives, yeah, the Maldives is literally burning vessels that they catch. They catch you illegally fishing, they will light your boat on fire. Wow. That's how dramatic fishing has gotten in many regions because fish, fish populations are collapsing. Some overfishing, some climate related, but it all kind of goes together, right? It's all human activity. So very important that that stays safe. Also, I think there's some precedent that could be set um, is really is like how to find these companies that they do catch and give them like a significantly like damaging enough number of fine when they do catch them because I know there's a couple of international court cases where we would caught fishes fishing vessels and then the Kiribati government could really make revenue from other people breaking their crimes like their laws and their sovereignty so that's that's a thought tourism mm -hmm. is what the local Kiribati people want they really do love seeing the world and feeling like the world is coming to visit um, Islands like uh, Canton or Millennium Island, that could be a international hub. It was in World War II. That was like a big refueling station for the Americans. And it'd be so much easier in our new economy to like be able to just charge fees and tariffs when planes land to refuel. There's also, um, I think, cables, like fiber optic cables underneath Canton and over there. As to the other end, over by Fanning Island, or Tabu Island or Christmas Island, which is like shaped like a crab claw. That's closer to Hawaii. Back in the day, when cruises were real, real big, it was really easy for a lot of American California cruises to go and stop in Christmas Island because it's just a day real hard ship down south from Hawaii. And then they can handle an international crew, which is significantly cheaper than an American crew and gives Kiribati people an opportunity to make some money on the cruise ship. So guess win-win yeah. all around. <laughs> Lots of options though. And then yeah. I had a personal product and the new Californians might appreciate it, but in Kiribati, these the men will roll their cigarettes in, um, do you remember what it's called? The Niimoko. And it's a type of bandanus leaf. Makes for a really good rolling paper. I've heard. And it tastes really good. And it's only found on these really dry atolls. And I brought it to California, had all my friends try it out. It's waterproof, so you could go surfing. Well, at least if you don't fall in. <laughs> or be on a boat, which is what the, you know, everybody who works on a boat or goes fishing, just have it tucked behind their ear. You can get splashed. And everything is waterproof. So I think there's a lot of cool stuff that can be made from these islands. I think that scientifically speaking, we could really research coral reefs a lot more and find some really cool breakthroughs there. I know Christmas Island has been doing seaweed farming and that's working for them. So yeah, it's really like to the imagination of the people and only the will and the budget. And the budget is like not even that significant when you're talking global nation terms, right? Well, you've both shared some great ideas. Are any of these ideas being funded or supported by the government of the island? I know that China's talking about putting that Millennium Island airship in. 
And I did read when I was a reporter there, the application from the Russian oligarch who tried to buy that. That was a hilarious application, by the way. But it made sense. He made a really good plea for why he would be the one to build the airport because of his experience. So I'm like, okay, okay, very interesting. People know that it's happening. And I feel like, yeah, it's up to Kitabas really to leverage these sort of bids from the larger companies. I saw some news releases where the president was trying to find locations for displaced people from the islands. Is um, the water rising to the point where we will have to have a few evacuees for want of a better way to describe these poor people who are being flooded out? Is that Lulu? Could you answer? Do okay. you know? So, okay, climate migration. I think it is important that this happens. I understand the need for there to be a global precedence. And I think Kiribati being, you know, very, very like green and not so much carbon and suffering from this as a threat because of all the carbon buildup. I think, I do think that that was the right country to pick to make this sort of legal stand on the international stage. I think they picked the wrong guy in New Zealand, that lawyer team. Um, even the Kiribati people were very unhappy with how the news spun it in the West. And then you do see a significant brain drain where people will get educated and then just move to mm -hmm. New Zealand or some other bigger country like Australia and find a way to get out because that always gotten so packed mm -hmm. and it is so squished and it is just very dusty and dirty and you constantly have this threat of can you take care of your little piece of land there. So I think migration is a very important issue. I know Notetong bought a little chunk of land in Fiji and theoretically we could all go there. But I think it's important to understand that history, especially history in the region, places like Banaba were relocated to Fiji. And we saw how that turned for the population when they lost their connection to their homeland. They felt like a, dis, um, a displaced people. And from American history, you understand when indigenous Americans have been moved from their homeland, what a displaced people's trauma looks like generations later. So, Migration as an option, yes, we should have that as an option because we should have all the options on the table. That's what it's gonna take. This is a problem on a magnitude the world has not yet faced. And so having as many options and as many doors available is really important. Yeah, the, the land in Fiji has been mentioned a couple of times. So Anote Tong was the president of Kiribati from 2003 until 2016, I believe, and he, made a, a big goal of his presidency to pursue what he called migration with dignity to have some pathway available to his people if they did feel they needed to, to migrate. So when he was the president, Kiribati purchased this land in Fiji, which could be used for agriculture, but could potentially be used as a place people could move in the future. Now they would still have to get immigrant visas. You can't even just because you own the land does not just mean anyone you want can immigrate. There's still right laws about that the president or the current president of fiji has said that if people of kiribati or elsewhere in the pacific need to move he would welcome them to his country he said that but that's there, there's not like a a law on the books that, that guarantees that also that land right now there's already a village with people living there and although it's a large land area it's very hilly not the best suited for growing crops and probably not the best place for people who are used to living by the ocean and living off the ocean to be now living on uh, kind of an inland an inland area. So I don't I don't think that's really the way things are looking right now that's not like an immediate solution people could pursue. Now in, in terms of people needing to move right now I mean there are times Lou mentioned the king tides when those come in and people's houses are are flooded that is happening seawalls are getting broken but people will, it's not like an entire island is underwater at this point. People's houses flood for a few days. It sucks, but they, they the people are very resilient. They deal with it. Flood water go down, they, they clean it up. Maybe they go stay with a friend somewhere else on the island. But it, it's not yet at a point where an entire island is underwater and people are like just sitting in boats in the ocean needing, you know, like floating around in a boat needing a country to land to. So it, it's not, the situation is not, like like that yet. Uh, I did want to mention that there has been um, a legislation proposed in the United States called the Climate Displaced Persons Act. It was proposed in the, introduced in the Senate by Senator Markey 
from Massachusetts and in the House by Nidia Velasquez from uh, New York. And this would authorize the admission of climate displaced persons to the US. The text of the bill does cite Kiribati specifically, but it's not just for people from Kiribati. It's anyone around the world could apply. And if, if it's like they're being forced to leave their homes and they can no longer live in their homes due to environmental changes, basically, they could apply for this visa to come to the US. Now, at the same time, this legislation would also create a global climate change resilience strategy, or the US would need to create that with the main goal of being able to help people to, to stay in their homes so they wouldn't be forced to, to leave. So I, I, I do think it is a worthwhile piece of legislation to be discussed. It, it has a few co-sponsors in both the House and Senate right now, but it uh, has a ways to go to get enough support to come to the floor to be discussed or to be talked about. But Barbara, I'm gonna share a link to a little advocacy campaign that was started by Return Peace Corps Volunteers for Environmental Action, as well as the Peace Corps Community for Refugees. And it's, we've shared it with, through our RPCV network, but it's also something that anybody can, can do. You don't have to have any connection to the Peace Corps. You can click on this link. It will pre-fill a, a letter for you that you can send to your representative in the House. You can send to your two senators, asking them to support this legislation, the, the Climate Displaced Persons Act. So I, I think that is, not the, that is not the one solution that's gonna solve every problem, but I do think it's something worthwhile for uh, to, to be pursued. Yeah, Barbara, when we talk about taking action, I think this is one thing that everybody here could do. Um, and I did it already. Um, I got some responses, but if you send it to your representatives and senator and everyone, huh? Right. Um, I will record, I will save the chat and I will put, I will answer Mark Zuber and other people who have asked me questions. Um, and I will try to get back to you. We will have an ongoing report on our UNASB.org. We will make um, both Lulu and my dear new friend, Brady, um, reporters for us. We will have updates. This is not something where we say, oh, isn't that too bad? No, this is about let's make our climate resilient people more resilient because they know we're here to help them. We're about at the end of our hour, but I really wanted to hear, Lulu, why don't you share your thoughts at this point and then we'll end with Brady. Lulu, what are you thinking? I'm thinking I am so grateful that there are people here who really care about this topic. I want to thank you all for organizing and thanking you all for being here and your input. Want to thank Brady for inviting me on and Nancy as well for doing all this email communicating. Uh, I want to say that I think it's very important when we're discussing climate change to recognize it as a human rights issue or maybe like a human dignity issue because I really do like that language a lot better. This idea that you know you're dignified in your home, the king of your own castle. I think that's very important to to feel at like a very personal level. I think um, awareness is important, and I'm really happy that there is legislation in the American government that I'm a part of, right? <laughs> I'm very happy there is efforts to combat climate change because we are one of the biggest produce, like polluters. And um, I know that Texas is hopefully updating their power grid soon. <laughs> and we can only hope that these solutions in our country and all the things we see around us and the people we have any sort of effect on can see fit to take the good solutions and um, support each other as like global human beings. Thank you, Lulu. You've given us hope. You know, um, you. when I first heard about this issue, I was pretty sad because I thought to lose your home, your, your ancestors, your mm -hmm people that you have grown up with and, and displacing them. And then I listened to you, I watched your movie and I saw the resilience in the faces of the people who are living there and I was so proud of them. Brady, what would you like to end with today? I'll echo Lulu thanking everyone for coming and, and listening. I really appreciate people wanting to learn about Kitty Bess and, and uh, supporting our efforts here. Lulu, thank you for making that film. It is on YouTube, so please, anyone, feel free to sh share that with, with other people. It's if the two grandmothers doesn't, seeing them does not have an impact on someone, I don't, I don't know what will. The movie was Love Note to an Island, is that correct? 
Yep. Yeah. So if you go to YouTube, you can watch the film again. And um, Lulu, you have a longer film out also, don't you? What? How can we watch that? Ah, no, the longer film is still locked in my head. Um, oh, <laughs> right I now, I'm in the assembly cut stage. So I have all 200 hours being compiled slowly in Avid. For right. me to go through all 200 hours and whittle it down to 20 and then from 20 maybe to two so uh, it's a process but i'm kind of glad that i have this movie you know to to look back on and be like oh man i'm glad i made the short version of it because it's a proof of concept also it has a way wider reach than i ever expected it to also i think the un film for climate competition because that five thousand dollar cash prize for my second place win did get me a plane ticket back home to Texas, so thank you for that. Um, so nagatoki te tara te karakia yo, nate maori te rai ato tapu mo, and that's the best blessing. And I just wanted to bless all of you with that today, because uh, I think that people can solve the solution because people made the problem. That's problem. That's the way we <laughs> have to make the problems aware, and we have to do something about it. And so many people in the chat have really sent you a lot of love today and i'm sure you see the chat yourself and brady she had the last word but i'd like you to give us a little bit more because we just so appreciate your opening slides and appreciate you and that you were a peace corps volunteer and it must be a different islands now right yeah well we are we're hoping to the, the border is still shut for travel because of COVID-19, but we are hoping to go next year to visit our, our family there. And like I said before, right on the other side of the globe, we're still fairly closely connected, but just to bring it back home for our, our wider audience here, I, I, I really feel for the people on the West Coast dealing with this drought and the, this heat wave, I feel very fortunate to live where I do in upstate New York. And Climate change migration is, is not something just impacting the people of Kiribati. It is having an effect all over the world. And it's, it, it, it's already too late for us to be proactive. We already have to be reactive. Now, it's not something that's going to happen. It is happening. So uh, talking about it and trying to encourage our elected officials and others, other people make the decisions to do something about it is important because I was having a conversation through my job last week with a farmer who had been living in California it was getting too difficult with the droughts. She moved to New York State, and now she's farming in upstate New York. But she said the land in upstate New York where we live, because it's fertile, because we have a plentiful water supply, is just being bought up by people from all over the country and other parts of the world because they're, uh, they're already looking at a future when more people are going to be leaving certain places, moving to others. So it's, it, the wheels are already in motion, and I, we, we need to get we're, – we're behind. We need to catch up and, and – prepare for be able well, to be able to manage climate change migration effectively. You know, Brady, I think your words should be typed up and sent to the world because we need to pay attention. Pay attention, you know, this is our, our, our planet. We have one planet and we have to learn how to manage it properly so we all benefit and we all live a life that we were meant to have, the destiny that we were born with. And together we can do that. And that's why I'm so proud of our United Nations associations because we really work closely with the United Nations. The United Nations is just really, really tries to make sure that we have the awareness of what is going on on our planet. And I remember when Ted Turner went to visit my husband on the 37th floor and he said, now what can I do? And Robert told him, robertmuller.org, those who want to know more about Robert, I think we need global news. We have to pay attention to what's happening on our planet today. And so Ted Turner went back with a small grant from the United Nations and he started some films about the world. And then he started CNN. Well, you know, it's our responsibility to be vocal about what we want on the news. So don't hesitate to write to people who are doing the right thing. Don't hesitate to make your voices heard. That's why we are here. We want to hear from you and we want to work together. Um, Lynn McTaggart has this theory that in togetherness, we can solve our problems. And I think that's what you brought to us today, Brady and Lulu the possibility of us working with you, not for you and not above you, but with you. Together we are a team, a team of people who care about our planet. And with that, I thank each of you for joining us today. And if you haven't paid your dues to UNASB.org, 
there's a donate button and I'm gonna give a shout out to Catherine. I was so happy today when I saw Catherine had just donated to our UNA. What a great woman, all the way from Australia on PayPal. So pay your dues, join us, and don't hesitate to go to unasb.org. Not only do we tell you what we're doing, but we have a global feed from the United Nations. You can find out what they are working on today. You can make your efforts match what the people need on our planet. So with that, I'm Barbara Mueller. I thank you, Nancy, for bringing Kitty Boss to us. I thank you, Lulu, for being not only glamorous, but well-spoken <laughs> and making it possible for us to hear it. And Brady, you're an angel from heaven. Thank you very much for being here. And with that, I want to see you every month, the fourth Tuesday, and join us for our programs. Bless you and thank you. And Barry, thank you for joining us. When our president speaks, we all listen. All right, my friends. Bye for now. Thank you. Thank so you. Thanks, everybody. I'm not going to turn the recording off because I want to get the chat. <laughs> well done. Well done, Barbara and, and, and Lulu and Brady. Great, great, great. Thank you, Nancy. <laughs> nice awesome to be a part of it. Thank you. Thank you, Barry. Stay tuned for join that una santa barbara chapter is the best thing going and uh and if you're out of the area there's una chapters all over the country but you can join barbara's no matter where you are also that's right we we have members from all over the world god bless right. you all